right, so here we are. Did you like my joke at the beginning? Here we are, and you're over there. No? That was last week. That was last week. Did you like that? Yeah. I, I could bring it back. I can do the same joke. No. Oh, why not? Wasn't that good. Oh, so if I if I have a really good joke, I can say it every time? Yep. No, really? That's what I do. What Solid jo- gold. <laughs> I think I told you that's not that good. And then you just keep bringing it up. Yeah, cause, Cause because the more I bring it up, the better it gets. Yeah, but what about my joke? What about it? You don't seem to have much confidence in it. I don't... You did bash on my jokes all the time. It's and a I collaborative keep bringing them. experience, Edwin. No, you just got to be brave. Which we're going to get to. What? You, got, you have to sin with uh, freedom. You know, sin with boldness. Let it all loose. <laughs> what? No, no, no. What? Hang, hang loose, man. Doesn't that sound like hippy-dippy talk or something like that? Far freaking out, baby. Yeah, there you go. Hello and welcome to the Ducks Never Waver Lunch Break, where you get food for thought and can rejuvenate to sally forth. Join the dynamic duo, Edwin and Megan, as they explore topics of gravitas and pomp, Brought to the brink of absurdity and thrown off, down, down, down the precipice of ridiculousness. Interesting. All right, so we are we're walking down memory lane. Ah, good. No, that was just a total like me not saying the right word. The 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 goal with improv is to always say yes. No. <laughs> uh, yep. We are here and you're over there. We are drinking kombucha. I think this is my favorite flavor. Yeah, the watermelon. Watermelon mint. That's good. So Not good. too minty. Lots of watermelon. Oh, see, I was thinking it needed more mint. But I love mint. Like, like fresh mint. Like, not toothpaste mint. No, I, what I like about the watermelon is that it's got that... It's not just the sweetness. It's yeah. also got some of that tanginess that yeah. you get of the, well, the watermelon. Because you have the fermented tea. And also, I did put yeah. some lime in there, too. Oh. I always like my kombucha very zippy. Zippy. It is zippy. Oh, good. Yeah, it's good stuff. I I haven't had store-bought kombucha this good. Aw, thanks. I kind of have forgotten what it tastes like, so I don't even know anymore if it's yeah. good, better, or best. Yeah. And yeah, it's... Hey, could uh, we... Uh, <clears throat> Go ahead. So, compared to making other things that you eat, how hard would you say it is for people to, to make their own kombucha? Like, realistically... It's not hard. It's just you have to set aside an hour, like, every two weeks. Like, depending on how large scale... You're doing it. But for me to have enough bottles for one every day, plus, and like, an extra one here and there... And it takes me two weeks for my tea to brew. I don't know why it takes... It's really slow. Like, some people are like, oh, it happens in five days. For me, it's like two weeks is where I like to get it. Okay. I guess because room temperature is actually colder than, like, the sweet spot of up 80 for yeah. kombucha. Yeah. Uh, so, I think that's what it is. It's just too cold for it. Stop air conditioning your house. Yeah. But, like, the heater doesn't get hot enough either. Yeah. So, it just it's just year-round kind of a, an issue. 
Speaking we're of just watermelon. talking about watermelon. Wow. Thank you, Mumsy. Thank you. Watermelon delivery. No, so basically you just have your tea and then you have to make your flavorings and bottle it. And then, so I, I would say that takes me about an hour every two weeks. So it's really... So it's, it's, not, it's comparable to, say, baking your own bread? Yeah. So if you're the type who's willing to even occasionally bake your own bread, yeah, you could... Yeah, you can do that. Maybe. I mean, I would say it's even easier than baking bread because you don't have, like, the mixing, then waiting, the mixing, then waiting, and then baking, and then waiting. Mm-hmm. It's much more on your own schedule. If you don't want to touch it for a little bit, it's okay. Yeah, and you can always, like, if you really want to take a, a complete break, you can stick it in the fridge and stop, and then whenever you want to pick it back up again, you can you can do that. So I would say it's very, yeah, it's, it's quite easy. Okay. Um, if you can, if you can make yourself a cup of tea with sugar in it, you can make kombucha. I was thinking about something else too that wasn't related. Oh, I was wondering if we should do a series. Uh, on, I think it would have to be on Instagram, of good, better, best. Good, better, best. Okay. Uh, because what was I reading? I think it was the Bible. <sighs> what was I reading? It was something about. Oh, now I can't remember what I read, but it was something about you you can long for better while being content with the good. Well, I think I think it was just the Christian life of like being here on earth and that it Jesus has come like that's kind of like we're in a better place, right? It was good and then mm-hmm. is better, but when we're united with him in heaven like that's better right and it's okay to long for the best or like Mm -hmm. look like and see the best but even but be content with what you have too does that make sense well i feel like that's actually something that's related to what we're going to be talking about today yeah and i just think there's there's it's really fun in art to see good, better, best. Like you can line up like three paintings of the similar subject. Yes. And, and see can, the skill. You can even see that in an artist's career. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see early Van Gogh and then kind of transitional phase Van Gogh and then Van Gogh at the end of his career. Mm-hmm. And you can see the improvement. And the striving for excellence does not, it never ends in a way. Mm-hmm. And I just in a in a in a minuscule way, I have stop me if I don't know if I've talked about that on here, but it's just it's funny for me to have and I and I've kept them the three things, the three objects, because it is such a clear representation of this good, better, best that I'm talking about. Okay. Is I have three ceramic animals of similar size. Very like just small figurines. And one is a cat. It's one color. It's just a cream. You know, and just two black eyes that a machine basically made. And then I have a frog. And then the frog is multiple colors. And you can see, like, the cracks in the glaze that they use. Like, they Mm -hmm. use this, you know, that gets the texture on it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the details, like, the eye is, like, more hand-painted on with the glazes and stuff like that. And then I have this rooster, which is a different... Um, kind of is like that red clay, yeah. which isn't used as often. And it's 
hand painted like you can see the brush strokes and you can see it and it's like has these lively feathers and the detail on it where it's it's still like loose and fluid but is it's like the the movement of the feathers and just like the, the overall craftsmanship of it you can see was superior yeah like you can see something like mass market and something an artisan made and i like lining them up sometimes in a good better best <laughs> And I think, too, that little cat I have, that little, the first one, has more sentimental reason, like, more sentiment around it of why I keep it, mm-hmm. and which is another thing that I think kind of docks it down, mm. whereas, like, the frog really has no other thing than I just find frogs delightful, and I thought it was nicely done, and I just enjoyed it. And then the rooster has that kind of mixture of... It's inherent beauty, but then also the story of buying it okay. that went along with it. So I wouldn't say it's quite sentimental, but it has a it has a and past. What, and what was the story? The story. The story was. The story lives on how the boat she went down, and the people all died. Bummer. That this was our first visit to the Brandywine Museum the, that the mm-hmm. Wyeth family owns. Mm-hmm. And it's... Oh, I cannot begin to express how beautiful that space is. It's picturesque. It is so gorgeous. If you ever have a chance to go to Brandywine and the Wyeth Museum there. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And of course, like you're just filled with these exciting paintings you get to see nc wyeth and james yeah and all of this and you just like are open to this whole new world and just an artist i hadn't really experienced and to get such a full saturation of it and the beautiful landscape and they had a like a statue of the pig yeah and they have like a bronze so. in the sun and something like that and yeah. so i don't know it was just very uh, it, it, it sparkled the imagination and I saw this rooster in the gift shop and I was like, oh my goodness, I really like that. And, you know, I was like, oh mom, look at this. And she was totally, she's like, yep, we're good. We're getting this, you know, and it was, it was probably expensive. I actually have no idea. I think it was more, Mm -hmm. I mean. It's handmade. I don't. It's not big, so it's not like three thousand dollars. Right. But you know, it was a handmade rooster thing. Yes. It, <laughs> so it's like it's not. I'm sure it's not what you would typically give your. And also, it's not like serving a practical purpose, Mm-mm. a pragmatic purpose. Mm-mm. So it is. You're acquiring it for something more. Yeah. Almost. A, I think it's a deeper meaning than than uh, pragmatism. Oh, so, massively. So that's something I think that maybe Christians, especially of the Reformed persuasion, have difficulties uh, finding everything needs to be useful. And I don't know if that's coming out of the Reformation or if that's coming out of actually uh, Puritanism. Puritanism is very much a pragmatic view. If, if it's something yes. doesn't have a use, mm-hmm. a pragmatic implementation... 
then really you don't need it. So it's like bright colored clothing, you don't need it. Yeah. And different clothing, you don't need it. And to paint your house, you don't need to do that. So all these things, all these all these quests for beauty, I think they they, they reflect your outlook on what life is and who is the bestower of life too. Well, that that leads us beautifully into exactly who and what we are talking about, and we'll answer that more fully. But uh, today we are talking about Art Needs No Justification. By Hans Ruckmacher. And the, like your question of did that happen because of the Reformation, right? That, that pragmatism. And I don't think so because the Reformation had a huge frenzy of, of artists. Like... There was so much art being made after the Reformation. Well, also, it's interesting that it's the countries that are centered around the Reformation, mm-hmm. namely the Netherlands, that had their golden age before the rest of the world. Yes. Right, the 1600s. Yes. Which was a whole hundred years before France and Italy caught up with, yeah. with what was happening. Yeah, and it was definitely theological, like... You have the depictions of, of everyday life, like that yeah. enjoyment of everyday life and the still lives. And it's not like it was all of a sudden like no symbolism is, is chock full of symbolism. Mm-hmm. It's very deep, but it was kind of like no holds bar. Is that the right saying? Yep. My idioms are, are sometimes leave me, <laughs> uh, but no holds bar uh, to, you can paint everything. You can paint a landscape. You can paint everything. It doesn't have to have a religious uh, text to it. Like it doesn't have to serve that function of books for the lady. Yeah, it doesn't need like to be um... altar pieces mm-hmm. and and so forth. And, but like, it's not like they didn't have religious depictions, but like the historical pictures of the Bible mm-hmm. was still a very popular thing to paint. Yeah. But uh, they were done in a different way. So they were less iconoclastic. Mm-hmm. The faces of, of people became much more the faces of actual people. So people, they would draw models and then use them in the depictions of Bible stories. Right. And they would go out and see what old frail men looked like in terms of, like, the story of Job, and they would Mm -hmm. paint that. Yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, like, there's definitely a a going to realism in in a very, like, conscious and religious way. Mm -hmm. It's countercultural to what... What was happening. What was happening, yes. And that's interesting to, to, to note, too, is... Sometimes we have a feeling that people in the Middle Ages didn't paint with perspective and they didn't paint with realism because they couldn't do it. Well, maybe some of them couldn't do it, but there's also a reason why they didn't try to do that. There was there was much more going on. And like if you see people painted that like the saints, they sometimes don't touch the ground properly mm-hmm. because there's not there's not that grounding with the mm-hmm. With the foreshortening and with the, the perspective and so on. And that's n- almost done on purpose. Sure. Because they're not, they're to rise above what the earth is. They're not held yeah. down by their sins and so on. So there's there's a lot more going on than just like, oh, they didn't know how to draw back that. Yeah. Why is it like, I, it, we were laughing about this word earlier because I'm studying the Iliad and I'm using it way too much. 
But there's a hubris that we have now looking at it, and we just right away assume that they didn't know how to do something instead of thinking, like, oh, maybe that was a choice. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like maybe they, they chose to do it that way. Yeah. Instead of just assuming that, oh, they were ignorant and didn't know how to do stuff. Because then you say, see other paintings that are fine, and you're like, well, how did that guy know and that guy didn't know? Yeah. When they're all part of the guild. Yes. It doesn't make any sense. They're all taught by the same people. Yeah. So that wouldn't make any sense. So I, I would say, and I, I think Rookmacher would agree, uh, that it's the 18th century that really changed art. Yes. Well, real quick, who is Rookmacher? Who is Rookmacher? You should tell us who he is. Well, I'm just going to read what's on the back of this little Oh, there this you go. This little book, because then, then I know that it is historically correct. And yeah, because they, and I'm they not, had to check. Yeah, right? and I'm not making up lies, exactly. Yeah. Read so it. Hans Rückmacher, uh, born in 1922, and he died in 1977, was the founder of art of the Art History Department and professor of the History of Art at the Free University of Amsterdam. Made a significant contribution to Christian understanding of art and is well known as an author of Modern Art and the Death of Culture. The complete works of Hans Ruckmacher, which is in six volumes, was published in 2003. So he's a guru of art and mm-hmm. culture. He's uh, quite yeah, capable of dissecting the painting and dissecting our views of said painting. Art Needs No Justification is a minuscule amount of what he produced in his life of mm-hmm. you know in in terms of of books and it's really a pamphlet what we're talking about today yeah well, and it was based uh, off of a speech yes so this was i believe published posthumously but he yes. was he was just done working on it uh before he died uh but yeah this is from a speech that he gave so to fellow s- ar- artists so this yeah. is this is two artists this is from an artist to an artist, mm-hmm. and as as words of encouragement, especially to Christian artists, and that's what they're. And so he's really facing the question of what does it mean to be a Christian artist, and he gives a historical background to it and offers a lot of encouragement to the artist. But I I would say if you if you're not an artist, it is still very worth reading. Because he gives a lot of insights into help the artist. And if we, if the consumer changes their mind and the supporters change their, their outlook on what art is, it helps the artist. Mm-hmm. And but also why it is important to have art in your life and why it's important to support those who create the art. Yeah, to value it. So because, I, I, think, that, I think everyone would value this book. Like Everyone would get something out of this book. It is interesting that the title of this book is Art Needs No Justification. It, mm-hmm. But that is, this is the justification for art. In a sense of, he's making the argument of why art doesn't need to validate itself to exist. And that the artist doesn't need to say why he has to make this art. Well, let's get into the story of the tree, if you don't mind. Yeah, I love the story of the tree. Do you want me just to read the story of the tree? Yes. Because this is this is about the pragmatism that you were talking about. Exactly. And this, I think, is really a struggle for artists of all ages. And it's going to become so more and more. Because we're going to get into it a little bit about art as craft and art as art. <laughs> art. Yes. <laughs> 
Uh, all right, so this is Rookmacher. I should like to focus for a moment on a tree. A tree has many functions. It has beauty. It can cast a shadow. In its branches, the birds can build their nests. It produces oxygen. When it is dead, it can be used as wood and much more. Yet the meaning of the tree, its existence and reality as a creature, is not in these functions or not even in the sum total of these functions, but exactly in its being a creature, owing its existence to the great God Almighty who is the creator. The tree has its own meaning given by God. It is no less a tree when some of its functions for one reason or another are not realized. Rather, being meaningful, it has many functions. And so, then how much more humans for us. And then, who and then are he goes made, on to yeah. say it's like how, how much more we're made in the image of God. And but I, I think also what's so fascinating about that metaphor mm-hmm. of a tree is how many times in the Bible are we not compared to trees? Yes. Over and over again. Over and God's over again. people are trees. So it's it, it makes a lot of sense that he would use that metaphor because it's It's a good metaphor. It's a good metaphor. It's it's there. It's been used before. <laughs> and uh, so that's the interesting thing, though. Like, you have to start from a place of meaning, and then you have functions. Which is backwards of what our culture now living in the age of, of Nietzsche or after post-Nietzsche, mm-hmm. where oftentimes what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring about our own meaning into a meaningless void. Yeah. Which is just, it frankly can't be done. Mm-hmm. And and then if, if you're trying to impose meaning uh, extrinsically, it, it, there is there's no foundation for it, and it becomes kind of this make believe thing. Or do those qualities come extrinsically, extrinsically <laughs> from the language itself? It's a chicken and egg problem. We're talking about chickens. We're talking about eggs. Where life is meaningful because I say it's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Which has no bearing because why should what you say have any meaning? Because you just said that you yourself are not meaningful. <laughs> Yeah. So then, yeah, if you say that you're not meaningful, and yet you say this is meaningful, it's not. You've already said that you're not meaningful. It's make-believe. It is. It's such a mind-bend. We were having this conversation earlier, and I love it. Like, we should really... I want to study Nietzsche, and we should should do a whole thing about... Nietzsche. Nietzsche, because not only is it fun to say, it's a total mind-bend. It is. (laughs) So... But yeah, that's that. We we often like, well, what's the use of art, and what's the purpose of it, mm-hmm. right? And the question, the thing is, we never ask if those are questions we should be asking. Yeah, we we ne- we always assume that we're asking the correct questions. Mm-hmm. And so then we say, well, what's the use of that? I was like, well, what's the use of that question? <laughs> <laughs> and then this is how artists become hard and jaded and mean and people don't like them yeah yeah or they they become simpering and weak and they feel like they have to justify themselves at every turn mm-hmm. right it's a constant battle of saying i'm allowed to exist right that's not a good place to create art from if you're 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 constantly trying to say that i should exist i should exist when you already do mm-hmm. and you have inherent meaning Right? Well, I mean, 
And that's, and that's, again, too, the artist feels like they have to impose meaning. And he talks at length about that, about, oh, the artist feels like, oh, I have to figure out what my message is and what is my meaning and what, yes. what is the, you know, what do I want people to take away from looking at this? And that, the, and if he, you want to hear more of our thoughts on that kind of subject, you can go back to our podcast on uh, our prize. Yeah, because there's a lot very, of that problem of trying to justify what they did and yes. trying to like it feels like they came up with a meaning and then tried to illustrate that yeah and what, what, which what, i mean what, like that's di- that's different than like a feeling or like a like a thought that you have in your head that you're trying to explore through right. your medium i mean that you're scratching your head and going on google okay what's trending on like political issues and yeah. world global issues right like that's that's the difference like if you're trying to ex- like work through a problem you know, spiritually, emotionally, that's a little bit different. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Because it, what we called it is the, the um, well, kind of the allegory man cometh, or mm-hmm. there is, um, I have really good essay to write. Now let me make a piece of art based on that. Yeah. And what happens is everything ends up being very flat. Yeah. Because art is not meant to portray ideas in that way. Ideas well, are, I mean, if you if you want to like break it down in the Aristotelian way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when, of course we do. Oh, why not? <laughs> uh, we always do. Uh, that you you have, um, you know, you have your logos, ethos, and pathos, and let's let's focus on the the logos and the pathos. Mm-hmm. And Aristotle would say, if you have logos, reason, mm-hmm. that that connects to the the mind, but. It doesn't do anything unless you're connected to pathos, your heart. Mm-hmm. Unless you reach the heart, all your logos, all your reason doesn't matter, right? You're not persuading anyone, right? That's what Aristotle was trying to say. Like, you you have to persuade people. And then ethos, it does matter. It's like, it's your good character, mm-hmm. right? And like, who's saying it? And it is and what it, you're saying, is what you're saying touching the heart, but because it's evil and people's hearts are dark or is it touching them because it's true and right isn't that a little bit of the guiding like it ethos is also you have to be right yeah yeah you have to you have to you have to you have to be morally right right. absolutely that's what i mean like your characters like who's saying it right is they are they a a morally good person Mm -hmm. like that you should be listening to right Mm -hmm. like are they going or are they going to misguide you but it's interesting how he would say it's those three things where in the 18th century that got divorced. It was the age of reason. It's just logos. Mm-hmm. Right? And we can overcome everything through the mind. And that's something that Rookmacher is so knowledgeable about and really gets into the nitty gritty about how that time changed what our conception of art. Yeah. And that we went from the word art, artist, coming from artisan, to just art with a capital A. Yeah. Well, if I may, I'll read the first paragraph of his opening paragraph. Yeah, go for it. The role of the artist has not always been as it is today. In most cultures, including our own, before the new period that became, began somewhere between 
1500 and 1800, the artist was primarily a craftsman. Art meant making things according to certain rules, the rules of the trade. The artist was an accomplished worker who knew how to carve a figure, to paint a Madonna, to build a chest, to make a wrought iron gate, to cast a bronze candlestick, to weave a tapestry, to work in gold or silver, to make saddles out of leather, and so on. As far as organization goes, the artist was a member of a guild just like any other skilled worker. Some were master artists and took commissions for the shop. Others were helpers, apprentices, servants. A studio was, in fact, a workshop with a subtle division of labor under the leadership of the man we now would call the artist, and whose name we would sometimes know. So that's what art was before Mm -hmm. art became art with a capital A. A for assery. (laughs) (laughs) Can I leave that in? Yes. Okay. Like this is this is the time of of the enlightenment you're getting into romanticism uh you're concerned with originality all of a sudden it's it's the the artist should be out there suffering but also the artist is a genius and should be lauded it's a very and i think this is the problem with romanticism is it like a schizophrenic yeah. Because it's just like, oh, we don't need you. This is the age of reason. Yeah. And so financially, these artists are brought to ruin. But then it's also saying, oh, the artist is a genius. Mm-hmm. You know, he surpasses um, all of us. A more sensitive soul. Yeah. More exactly. in and tune. he sees the, the yeah. depths of the complexity, depth, de depthness. <laughs> the deep depths of the depths. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh,. So it's it's interesting how you you have this. I don't know, like it, it, I don't I don't say it because I I get nervous, uh, and but I get nervous because of the Enlightenment and Romantic era of that that you know the 1700s brought forth. Um, but I don't know if you've ever had it where you've said like, oh, I'm an artist, and people are like, oh, wow. I could never do that. Wow, that's so cool that you do that. Mm-hmm. And yet, you're also supposed to be, like, the poor suffering artist. And usually you are. And usually you are. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's, it's, it's funny that... Oh, wow, that... I would probably never buy something you make. Yeah! That's how <laughs> it, feel... <laughs> it feels like that. Like, oh, wow, that's so good that you do that. Yes, not me. <laughs> I'm glad my children can eat. I went into finances. <laughs> so it, it, it's funny. We're, how... we're not knocking on the poor people in financing, okay? You're allowed to you be, no. live your humdrum lives. Yeah, you can. You be you. Just buy more art <laughs> while being you. <laughs> you know, and that's... But, like, also, too, like, I hesitate to call myself an artist I would much rather call myself a craftsman, but I want to call myself the craftsman that has the E that's stuck to the A. Mm. The craftsman. Mm. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? <coughs> right? Yeah. Uh, or artisan. But I'm like, that gets typically labeled with bread. I feel like artisan bread is what people think of as 
You say artisan. Well, are you saying that like it's negative? It's not negative. It's just not what I do. If I oh. say, oh, I'm an artisan, they're like, oh, where's your bakery? <laughs> That's just what I have in my head. I, I, actually, I actually don't know. talk to people. I just right. don't. I, this, right. this is all made up. I don't talk to people. Yeah, this is as much talking as you ever Oh, heard. yeah. This is like my quota for the week. Uh, but I hesitate to say artist because I'm like, oh, I'm not an artist. I'm not saying deep, meaningful things. I'm not at the top of my game. Settle down. Are you kidding? I'm at the top of my game. I'm right up there with the big dogs. Girls, come on. Leave the saving of the world to the men? I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, I'm not the most... I'm not, I'm not the best, right? I, got, I know I got a long ways to go mm-hmm. before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. But you well, know, like, it's so, like, interesting. That's the hesitation. Like, it, yes, but like I think it's very interesting. Just in this short conversation we've had, we're not even really into it. Several things that he brings up later that like yeah, go the, for it. there's well the whole thing about uh, you can't be better than your best. Mm. So like when you, if you are a Christian, don't be ashamed of it. Work out of the fullness of your being. And give the best you have. You can never be better than you are. Be ashamed to be less. But you fall into pride and foolishness if you want to be more. This means don't be afraid and live out your freedom. So this is a subject that we've... I feel like you've discussed it more at length than I have. Really? I've listened. Oh, okay. (laughs) I've listened a lot. You've listened to my tirades? Yes, I have. Well, I, I've definitely matured on this subject. Yeah, because you used to have a very different point of view. Yes. So so say how you used well, to have a different point of view. Well, I would have this point of view that I don't know if I ever did my best. Yeah, it really got your goat when people said, well, you did your best. Yeah. When you were frustrated at the outcome of something you had done. Right, because it couldn't possibly be my best, because if I was to try to do it again, it would be better. Mm-hmm. So obviously, it wasn't my best. Yeah. And you, were, you know where you went wrong, yeah, so then it yeah. wasn't good enough. And it, and it wasn't good enough. It wasn't... Like, if you did a, a, a math test and you didn't get them all right, like, how can you say that you did your best? Yeah, but, because, di- yeah, but doing your best is different than the best. Well, I could not dis- differentiate the okay. two. So, yes. But I would be quite... But also, like, just in anything, like... Like swimming, I was mm-hmm. I was good. I was naturally fairly good at fourteen for swimming. Mm-hmm. But how did I know if I did my best? Like, could could I have eked out just a little bit more if I had just tried just a little bit harder? Because like that's the thing, especially in physical exertions, it's kind of it's it's as much your brain like out how much your brain can output and like how much you're willing to to go mm-hmm. and like do you know that you actually tried your hardest like your actual best because sometimes you think you can't do something and then you can do it mm-hmm. so then that's kind of like well how do, how do you know what you're even capable of okay so so that was your starting point that was my starting point and i really struggled with that because i felt like i was always being slothful not slothful but n- not actually doing my best yeah and that you're called to do your best. Like, God has called you to do your best. And then you're like, I'm falling short. Yeah. But with with this, I mean, there's a very logical thing to say. You can never do better than your best. Be- yeah. Because, yeah, your best can improve over time. But 
it's always a snapshot of time. If you're if you do your best right now, mm-hmm. that's the best you can do. Now that might be limited because, like, let's say in um, athletic competition, you were dehydrated and you hadn't rested and so on. Your performance would not be your best in mm-hmm. terms of what you can do overall, but it was the best you could do in that moment w- yeah. under those conditions. Yeah, and that's what I had to realize is that time and space matter. Do you think it's a little bit like? hypocrisy where if you have to ask if you're being hypocritical then you're not Mm. like if you have to ask did I do my best then you did right because you'll know right away if you didn't I think so maybe little kids don't like well you don't have like the self-awareness maybe maybe I think I think you do know I think I always knew when I actually did try my hardest yeah which was 110% 110% of the time. Well, I mean, that gets into a whole other can of worms. Can of beans? What is it with these idioms today? It's a can of worms. It's a can of worms. Yeah. Bag of beans? Oh, spill the beans. <laughs> what is it? Spill the worms and can those beans. When do you decide not to give 100% and is that still doing your best? But I feel like that is a conversation for another day. Yes, and that's more involved. And I actually do think that that is more just saying that your best is limited in those situations. I think so too. And I think that's what he's saying though. Like it's foolishness and pride to think that you are capable to go beyond what you have been given. The Uber Ranch. Yeah, we're getting back to Nietzsche. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, how will we get back um, to uh, Descartes? Back through the years, I go wandering once again. Back to the seasons of my youth. Another philosopher talking about... um, Descartes before the horse? (laughs) Yes. The notion of objective and subjective, and that objectivity is subjective, and subjectivity is objective, in any rational scheme. Well, murder is immoral. Immorality is subjective. Yes, but subjectivity is objective. Not in any rational scheme of perception. Perception is irrational and implies imminence. But judgment of any system or a priori relation of phenomena exists in any rational or metaphysical or at least epistemological contradiction to an abstracted empirical concept such as being or to be or to occur in the thing itself or of the thing itself. Yeah, I've said that many times. But that also is a new notion. Like, that didn't exist. Like, that idea of using those terms of objectivity and subjectivity. And I just find that so fascinating how that's now so ingrained on how we talk about culture, anything, movies, music, clothing, like whatever. It's just like, it's subjective, right? And then you have a few critics who give their objective opinion, but you're allowed to disagree subjectively, but you're not the objective expert. And I just find it fascinating, like, what, it would have been just, that, that, that didn't exist is so cool to me. It's hard to think of a world where that doesn't exist. Yeah, but I feel like I'm constantly fighting against that. Right? Because it, it's... Does that make everything objective, though? 
if if you don't have those terms no because it would be all one thing so the objectivity and subjectivity would be incorporated into each other yeah and that's why I think like talking about them distinctly because like if you actually truly talk about things objectively and subjectively you just run circles around each other and then you end up like with a quota like 30% subjective and 70% objective right where like it should be just one thing you do run into vicious circles very you, quickly. You do. And it, it also is the line of thought that brings us the, well, that's my truth. And you can have yeah. your truth. And I think that's, and that's what subjectivity is. Like for, you know, like with my world experience, my romantic feeling, my, this is my gooshy gooshy heart, right? This yeah. is good for me. Yeah. This is true for me. This is, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, that gets into a very dangerous spot very quickly. Well, it's also like, what happens when two people say like, well, this is my truth. But like, my truth says that that's not true. Right. We we live in a world where we think that we can live like side by side and Mm -hmm. and have different truths. But the fact of the matter is if it's, if it's a different enough truth, we can't because right. what if your truth is that I should die and my truth is that you should die? You're at an impasse. Yeah. How do you figure that out? You can't. Not through argumentation. You don't, but like unless you acknowledge that your truth is valid and my truth is valid. So you have like a pacification of like, you let me live with my truth, I'll let you live with your truth. But But nobody's happy about it because it's not true then. We're getting back to Nietzsche about how we're making our own meaning. And if you are meaningless and you're making your own meaning, then your meaning is meaningless. Yes, but Nietzsche would say though that with such an impasse, it's the one who has the will to power who would actually make their truth uh, true, which would be just... It's another way of saying might makes right. Yeah. And Nietzsche would be totally fine, fine with, with that. that. Yeah. And you can kind of see his point throughout world history. There have been instances where might has might? has oh. proven the point of who was right in that instance. Heck yeah. Isn't it amazing how in all of world history, it's always the good guys who win? What? <laughs> Get no, it's it's a it's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. How do I not know about the thing? It's just laughing at the fact that the winners get to write the history books. Oh. So the good guys always win. Win because yeah. they wrote the history. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is true. That's the interesting thing about history is who's yeah. who's writing it. Actually, that's yeah. a really good course. Side tangent. That's a really good course from the great courses. Is is it a great course though? It is a great course. Okay. It's a great course from the Great Courses, which is also called Wondrium. I wonder why. I know. Uh, but it's called the history of historians or the history of the history makers. Basically, that's close enough. It'll get you there. But, but it, it goes through historians and their perspectives and what they were, what the point of their histories were and like what they were trying to bring to their readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's really fascinating, like the history of historians. Which it is. Does it start with Herodotus? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Which, if you guys haven't read that or at least listened to a podcast on it, you you should. It's good. I yeah. loved reading Herodotus. Yeah. No, and I, I Herodotus made me smile it's because funny. Yeah, it's funny. I'm very. They can points. be funny, but also it, it. He just sometimes is like, well, 
there's three stories. Here's the three stories. Yeah. You can decide which you one des- you like best. Yes, you decide. Yes. I just think it's really fascinating the way the talking about history and historical context, how Ruckmacher puts it in historical context. And hopefully we will be discussing a movie uh, whenever we meet back here again that kind of shows in art exactly what Ruckmacher is talking about. It's the problems with the age of reason, the problems with, you know, that, that art doesn't exist anymore. And that you don't believe in it, but like whatever you like is fine. Uh, and and it uh, even has scenes with like a Cartesian uh, mm-hmm. philosophy in it. King of everything, Ray de tutto. But you may call me Ray. You know, the moon is a very insignificant part of my domain now. There is so much, 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 much more. <laughs> Nothing ails me. Can you not see that I am at one with the cosmos? Mm. Ah, ah. I tell you that, and all you can say is, ah, what, are you blind? Baron, let me explain it to you. Since you were last here, I, that is my head, that which is left of me, where the brilliant and important parts are located, is now ruling and governing the known universe. And that which I don't know, I create. I just created spring. But seriously, without me, there would be nothing. Not even you. Cogito ergo es. I think, therefore, you is. There goes my revolting body with the queen. Thinking horrible man. Oh, it's so embarrassing. Please don't look. Maybe you'll go away. Oh, it is hard to bleed my body and I were ever attached. We are so totally incompatible. I mean, he is still dangling from the food chain and I am in the stars. Oh, it is so unmetaphysical. No! So it's. I'm very excited about that doing that in conjunction with this because I think it's really great to to read it in a I don't know like what what is this called like in a informative way a educational way right you like you read it like this and but then to see it in a film right is a different experience and so again is that connecting the logos and the pathos right like your your heart and your mind Right. And it's interesting that that's, the Greeks did that in their theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they knew that, that they wanted to connect those things. Yeah. Yeah, let's, since we've been talking about philosophers and philosophies a little bit, my favorite part of this book, and I have many, mm-hmm. but his rhythm for Christian life that he states so clearly and so powerfully just runs through my mind. And like, sometimes I need the reminder of reading this book again. Yeah. Uh, but every time I do, I'm like, it sticks with you for, for a long time. Uh, and that, that is the statement of, of, and the cycle of weep, pray, think, work. And that it has to be done in that cycle too is very important to him. And I, I, I just think there's so much wisdom in that, especially with the weeping, like the the falling down on your knees at, at the situation, which, which brings you to prayer. Yeah. And you have to think about the problems and you have to consider it. 
and then you have to work, right? But you you can't do any well, of those things. Well, you have to first things. think. You have to think before you work. Isn't yeah. that fascinating? Yeah. Right, and and I like that he says very clearly, like, "Hey, you, you got to do it in this order. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Mm-hmm. You can't just go all flimmy flammy." Whereas I, I think I would just do weep, pray, weep, think, weep, work, weep. <laughs> Lots of weeping. <laughs> so much weeping. I am capable of much weeping. Well, I mean, just just to to snatch some phrases from him there, like, "Weep for the present situation. See how far we have drifted from an acceptable foundation." Then we pray in the knowledge that we cannot change things ourselves and that we need help. We pray also to ask for wisdom, strength, and perseverance to work for a better situation. We think through what Christianity means and its relation to cultural issues. We have been freewheeling too long at this point. This was written back in 77, so... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Amen to that, brother. Well, just before that... In terms of of thinking, what really struck me is that this thinking is the task not only of the great philosophers. We are all involved, even if we have different tasks. And this goes back to our podcast on leisure, if you haven't heard that one yet. And leisure meaning philosophy is for everyone, right? And this thinking is not just like, oh, you go think for me. Right? And then I'll work. Right? This is a cycle for everyone. You have to think. If you don't think, then you're you're not really living consequently out of the two the weeping and the praying. Mm-hmm. And if you don't think you can't possibly work out of anything. Yeah. But I just I've heard people say like, Oh, I don't like to think, I just like to do. Yeah. Have you heard so, that too? Is that, I, or is that me making it up? Again, no. like, I don't talk to people, so maybe maybe it was my flowers saying that. There are people... Being self-reflective is difficult because mm-hmm. you're going to find that you're not really as good a person as you thought you were. Right. And you can solve a lot of problems very quickly by not reflecting upon what you're doing. And it, it can become... We don't want to think so much where we're only genuflecting and and looking at ourselves and seeing the depths of our own despair and not praying and working yeah, you out have of that. to yeah and i but i think too like if you, that's if why you the do order the first two like that's yeah. why the order counts yeah right if you come to thinking through weeping and praying it's different and then also you don't get stuck at any one point right you have to then go to work um, and then only then can we mm-hmm. come to action and do something with perseverance. Of course, then we can start again. The sequence has its own logic. The one cannot be begun unless the other has been done. Weep, pray, think, and work. So I, I just think that's one of the most, like, every time I read it afterwards, I go, huzzah! Yeah. You know, like, and that's like this whole book. Uh, and hopefully our excitement is palpable, but if it's not, let me make it more palpable that uh, reading this will fire you up. Like, it will excite you. Like, it, it, it lays out problems. It lays out, like, historical things and trends, right? But it's so encouraging and it's so exciting, whether you're an artist or not, talking about faith and and the struggle and... 
meaning? Like, these are all universal questions. These are all things we struggle day in, day out. And that's why art is important. Because yeah. it deals with those things. It deals with your humanity. Oh, the humanity. But no, exactly. And that's what we, we are human every day that we're alive. So yeah. you may as well learn how to deal with humanity. Yeah. And so this this book every time, and it doesn't take you very long to read. It's like we said, it's a speech. It's a, it's a pamphlet. And it's also divided into little nuggets. Mm-hmm. And so you could read one little nugget a day and it would take you five minutes. Oh, to, to leave to, a, to read like three, three point or like this. this we pray, think work was two point four. Yeah. So no, you just to read you that can, that would that would take you like three minutes. I think you can read the whole pamphlet in about three hours. Okay. I don't know how like the people listening to him giving it as a speech kept I can, up. I can only assume that they they break for tea. For coffee time? No, not because of the length. Like, I'm like, I'm furiously like writing down notes and having to go back and forth, back and forth. And I'm like rereading and rereading. Like to have someone just say it once. It was like, oh, that was so profound. I don't remember what it was. (laughs) You know, that's what I always have listening to speeches. I was like, I got it. I got it. I got it. I ain't got it. Yeah. And then (laughs) oftentimes what happens to me when listening to lectures is they review the part that I heard fine. The first part. And then I'm like, the little, the little thing. That they just like kind of a throwaway line that you're like, oh, I could I could really use to remember that or think about that some yep. more. That's gone. Yep, same. <laughs> and then there's just me like I just try to write everything down now. So like yeah. listening to like what will be the important thing, I just like all of it. <laughs> yeah, no. Then you get stuck on a spelling word and then like I don't know, and then you yeah. just. It is funny. The only time I've really been successful in like, in, like really. Good note taking was the the uh, branch and stem system. Oh, see, I did not like that. No, I liked if I had to do use one of those that we learned in school. Mm-hmm. The three four words per line, where like you hit the key words because that's basically how I write anyways. I don't have <laughs> connecting words. No, you don't. So it's just like big picture words, and I'll figure it out later. Uh, so I like that better. I got so obsessed of how my tree looked. Oh, you can't. And then I'm like, where does this go on the tree? And then I would never pick the spot that had enough space for the, cause like that subject just branched and branched and branched. And then the other things that I thought would branch and branch didn't. You can just draw an arrow to the other side of the page. That, that just hurt my brain. I get so like, and then like, there's just too many arrows and it was very chaotic. Well, it's supposed to be, but that's okay. <laughs> Well, you read my notes. There's like three different fonts. And I I wrote it all. Which is a funny thing that he talked about, which is originality. And that's that's something that people really struggle with, right? Like, oh, is this original? And how do I make it look like me? He, He uses the example of your penmanship. Like, do you consciously think about, oh, I'm going to make this look like Megan's writing. I will, I will make this look like the essence and quintessence of, of me. Or do you just write and it comes out, right? Because I yeah. can tell a piece of paper that you've written. Boy, yeah. howdy, can I tell a piece of <laughs> paper that you've written on. Uh, but no, None like, of these words are spelled correctly. You know, actually, like, you're very nice. Like, I, I think I forged your signature once. Yeah. And it's, yours is really easy to forge. It's very, like, distinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very uptight, so it's very very stiff too. 
Uh, so it's See. easier than like the big loopy ones where yeah. you're just like, how many loops do I have to count? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be playing <laughs> It was all fine. He gave me permission. It was all fine. He was on the phone and he said, you can do it. I won't tell you for what though. You'll get arrested. <laughs> that's not true either, but that's okay. <laughs> really, it's not wink, wink, true, wink, wink. <laughs> do people do double winks or just one wink? Just one. Just one? I don't know. Two is kind of fun. Now that I'm doing it. <laughs> you look like you got something stuck in your really eye. Is, yeah. Seizure. Seizure over here. So when it comes to penmanship, you're saying that it's not that you're thinking about how do I be original to Megan. It, it comes out. Yeah. And that's like with... Especially with the, the more you know the rules, it's interesting. The more you know, the more your own personal flavor will come out. If, yes. If, if, you, if you will indulge me. Yes, in, yes. In a, in a, I will. In, in I will. A, oh, you don't really want to know that. I do. I do. Well, if you must pry... I must, I must. In a uh, jujitsu metaphor. It's, oh, no! I know. Um, wah, but, wah, wah. but this happens to people with jujitsu. Is They want to have their own style? Yeah. Well, no, 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 they don't. So, white belts want to have their own style. No way. But they don't. No, right? they got but, no style. Yes, they're just spazzes. But... I'll say one thing for you, J.D. Oh, you got style. Oh, yes, sir, you got style. But here's what happens is the more you learn, the more you will develop your own style. You will, you will, people will know what you're good at, what you like to do, how you will have, oh, you I will have your see. own, you will have your own way that works well with your, your own, your body. And you'll have uh, methods of attack that you like to use. Okay. I guess I can see how that would be considered a style. Yeah. It will, you know, it, it's a metaphor. It's not the same as, no, it's no, not no, a no, one-to-one no. I thing. I, was, I don't know. I'm just thinking of like, I don't know, people just like saying weird catchphrases and like trying to have flair and, <laughs> but you just mean like what they're good at and like yes. they're, they're, uh. What they I didn't want to get too deep in the weeds, but I was like, stockier, shorter people are going to like using Kimura and Kimura Trap, and they're going to be looking for those upper body attacks. And then mm-hmm. long-legged people typically like to use triangles. Long-legged? Why not tall? Or just people with all torso. <laughs> <laughs> like little stuff less than all torso. But the long-legged ones. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You can have a long torso and a short legs, and it. I feel bad for those people originality and which also feeds into how do you instill your christianity into it right because that's a concern too of not only original to yourself but how do you say that you're a christian through your art but this has always been the thing is like are you a christian artist or are you a artist who's a christian mm-hmm. and like so, so the difference is it becomes one of these things that is becomes flat and disingenuous because it's the same problem that the world is facing with their essays that they turn into pieces of art. You can't turn your faith into a piece of art. Your faith comes through in a piece of art. Mm-hmm. And th- that's just the way God made it. It's, you can't help it. It will It will show. Like You don't have to worry about originality and whether your worldview is going to come out or not. Because that's the whole point of a worldview. 
It's a little yeah. bit silly to say, oh, I hope my worldview is coming out. Because, like, if it is indeed your worldview, it will come out. That, yeah. That's that's the definition yeah. of a worldview. And I don't know why we... Well, I think it's because art became art. And we have to worry about what was the intention, but also what, what was the artist thinking and what are we supposed to think? And is that true or is that true to me and not to you? What do you see in this painting? Yeah, and you think also, too, the panicked clawing to trying to be countercultural. Yeah. And without actually understanding how to be countercultural, because that's what he's talking about, we pray, think, work. Like, that's how you be countercultural. Not just you screaming Christian at the top of your lungs. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And not you. And it's not you getting the most followers or getting your pieces in the most museums that you've slapped Christian over. Right. That's not how you change a culture. Like that's not being countercultural. Exactly. But weeping, praying, thinking, working. Mm -hmm. That's how you are countercultural. Yeah. Which is, and, and, and he, he says, like, you're not going to see it, like, or you're not going to be seen sometime, yeah. you know? And that's okay. Yeah. Well, he used the example of Michelangelo, which we're, I am so much like. We are both so much like. We are like. both so much like Michelangelo. When will you make an end of it? When I am finished. When will you make an end? When I'm finished. See, she's Michelangelo. Yep. You heard it here first. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, the idea of, like, do you... Basically that it becomes problematic when you are looking at uh, a, a Pieta that Michelangelo carved and you see Michelangelo... Right? You don't mm-hmm. see Mary with Jesus. Right? You see, oh, look at the magnificence of Michelangelo. What a man. What mm-hmm. Look at what he accomplished. And wow, he's a genius and he's the best. Right? You, you lose that. And that's the problem I have with Michelangelo is that that was his intent. Mm-hmm. Right? He, and that he was became the... one of the first rock star artists. Yeah. And that's really what the Renaissance was about and like that humanism coming Mm -hmm. in right and like the david is just an icon to to man like man's ness Mm -hmm. right and that's what michelangelo wanted you to see and that he made it for us like to try to be an artist where your your piece of art speaks for itself like you the artist is not screaming this is made by me but it's look at what i made like it's more like the piece itself and then you're like it, oh you may or may not know who it is like who yeah. made it is irrelevant it I, I in think, a sense yeah the, does that make sense yeah no the the best example is is bach mm-hmm. deo sua gloria yeah to god alone be the glory on is what every piece of music he wrote yeah and like and not like just not like in huge notes but he Mm-mm. it's not like he's signing it but like that he, that was his intent was yeah. to God alone be the glory and then 
I'm not saying that if you're a Christian artist and you put that on your painting, all of a sudden now it's, it's yeah, at the same be, level as Bach. Yeah, exactly. You're just going to be Bach, right? No, but that should be your intent. Yeah. That should be your headspace. Yeah, I always want, I wonder about someone like Van Gogh. Starry, starry night. Paint your palette blue and gray. Look out on a summer's day. With eyes that know the darkness in my soul Shadows on the hills Sketch the trees and the daffodils Catch the breeze and the winter chills In colors on the snowy linen land Weathered faces lined in pain Are soothed beneath the artist's loving hand now I understand What you tried to say to me And how you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now For they could not love you but still your love was true And when no hope was left inside On that starry, starry night You took your life as lovers often do But I could have told you, Vincent This world was never meant for one as beautiful who, I mean, clearly didn't make art to make people happy. And he did have a interesting relationship with his faith, I guess you would say. But he would say he was a, he was a Christian and, and it's his calling to paint. And that was, yeah, that was what he was called to do. And he had to paint that way because that's what his calling was. Yeah. And so there was that element of faith. And so, but now... I, I just wonder how he feels that we're all lining up to see Van Gogh, right? And that sometimes it's very easy to lose. It's easy to lose what you're actually looking at for seeing yeah, Van Gogh all over it. Does that you, make sense? Like for seeing, I don't know. You you lose the sunflowers, like the the, the stark beauty of the sunflowers mm-hmm. he painted by the fact that Van Gogh painted them. Yeah. And then there's the whole story the dramatic story of him going insane and like that just like feeds into everything and like everything you're like oh see the frenzied madness of him it's like no maybe that's just how he saw the world and it wasn't necessarily his insanity Mm -hmm. but it also isn't separate from his insanity so i i just wonder how he would and obviously we can't know it's just me musing but i don't think he would i do i think he would be surprised and I don't think that was really his intent from, like, what I've studied about him. Well, I mean, he he only sold one painting in his lifetime. Yeah. So I, I he definitely would be surprised at the well-received he, nature of his That his paintings work. are the most... Yeah, I mean, they draw like, crowds. No, they draw crowds, but, like, I think... I think A Starry Night is the the highest... The most recognizable. No, monetary... Like, mon- money. Money. Money, 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 money. 
Money makes the world go around, the world go around, the world go around. Money makes the world go around, it makes the world go round. Uh-huh. It's like worth the most money. One of his paintings is worth the most money of of all the art pieces everywhere. Wow. Or like all the paintings in museums. Something like that. Combined. No, not combined. <laughs> and I think it eked out uh, the Night Watchman. Okay. It's hard to believe that it also eked out like the, the Mona Lisa or something mm-hmm. like that. Like yeah. the Mona Lisa's super famous. I know. I, it's just, I don't know what has... It's, it's also hard to, to understand the pricing. Like how they a, do the yeah. pricing. I know. It's just an interesting thing though. Like you wouldn't necessarily think that his was the highest... Money yeah. value. What is the, the word? Oldest. Highest money value. I just keep it's saying not... highest. That's not the right way to say it. <laughs> Most expensive. Yeah, there you go. But it's like it's not like you just go up to the the, the painting store and say, "Oh yes, I'll have the most expensive painting you have." It's like a wine. You go to a good restaurant. Yes, I'll have the most expensive wine. No, you just don't do that with museum paintings, no. do you? But I think it, it does have a little bit to with, do. Like, can I just walk in with $3 billion and just say, I would like to buy a piece of artwork, please? Nope. Oh. A lot of them aren't even allowed to sell them to you. Yeah, see? But Party poopers. apparently, if you go and you grab it off the wall and you walk out the door, they're not allowed to stop you. They will get, well, yeah, but they have ways of making you talk. <laughs> All right, so why don't you read to us what he says uh, about the the core, the crux of his yes his, the his argument pinnacle. So if you remember what we were saying about how trees are not just the sum of their parts, they are meaningful because of their existence. They're not being that they are rather being meaningful. It has many functions. We said about the tree. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, that was earlier, right? So we're bringing it so. all home. Yeah, we're we're, yeah. we're full circle. Full circling. Chiasm. Where where are you actually page wise? Thirty nine. Okay. So it crumbles page wise. The same is true of human beings. They are meaningful for who they are, not for what they have. Their meaning is not in the possessions they have, nor in the qualities or talents. The fine preacher who has such a talent for speaking does not lose his humanity or his meaning in the slight of sight of God and his fellow men if he falls ill and therefore cannot speak. The meaning is in what one is, not what one has. The same is true of art. God gave humanity the skill to make things beautiful, to make music, to write poems, to make sculptures, to decorate things. The artistic possibilities are there to be actualized, realized by man, and to be given a concrete form. God gave this to mankind, and its meaning is exactly in its givingness. It is given by God, has to be done through God. That is through the talents he gives, in obedience to him, in love for him, in our fellow men, and in this way offered to him. But if art has in this way its own meaning as God's creation, it does not need justification. Its justification is its being a God-given possibility. Nevertheless, it can fulfill many functions, and this is a proof of the richness and unity of God's creation. I want to read that again. Its justification is its being a God-given possibility. Nevertheless, it can fulfill many functions, and this is a proof of the richness and the unity of God's creation. It can be used for communication, 
to stand for high values, to decorate our environment, or just to be a thing of beauty. It can be used in the church. We make a fine baptismal font. We use good silverware for our communion service and so on. But its use is much wider than that. Its uses are manifold. Yet, all these possibilities together do not justify art. Art has its own meaning. A work of art can stand in the art gallery and be just as cherished for its own sake. We listen to a piece of music just to enjoy it. A kind of enjoyment that is not merely hedonistic. It surpasses that, even if in some cases it can give great pleasure. But it has the possibility of a great number of functions that are the result of the fact that art is tied with a thousand ties to reality. It is exactly the last element that has been underrated by those people who spoke of high art as autonomous for its own sake. As art does not need justification, nobody has to be excused for making art. The artist does not need justification, just as a butcher, a gardener, a taxi driver, or a policeman, or a nurse do not need to justify with clever arguments why they are doing their work. The meaning of the work and life is certainly not in giving an opportunity to preach or witness. A plumber who gives some great evangelistic talk but lets the water leak on is not doing his job. He is a bad plumber. It becomes clear that he does not love his neighbor. The meaning of these jobs is in the love for God and the neighbor and each person prays in his own way, thy kingdom come, hallowed be thy name, and works toward that in his specific job. We minimize this and in a way destroy our understanding of what God called us to do. If we speak about playing a role or fulfilling a function, there is more to it. It is the same for the artist. He needs no justification, not in the sense that we are using the term here, of course, he needs justification as much as anyone else, if we use the term in its theological sense. The artist is a human being, and as such, sinful and in need of the justification through the finished work of Christ on the cross. The Christian works as a new being in the sense of Romans 6, and his artwork is as much part of his Christian being as all the other human activities we mentioned, just as much as that of the preacher or evangelist says it very clearly i i just always love that that line that uh art is tied with a thousand ties to reality i think that's such a cool line i just like he is a bad plumber <laughs> yeah well and he also uses that uh, that example of a plumber in a in a in another way where he says like well we don't even realize that what art gives us day to day, just like we don't realize the plumbing day to day. It's when it's broken that you realize it. When there's something wrong with it, right, that's when you notice the plumbing. Right, so when the art and the culture attached to it is broken is when you notice it, really. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and that's the interesting thing about it. And, like, we, we sometimes... Like, we undermine it, right, of, like, what mm-hmm. art, like, the role art plays in our life. But he's he expounds of, like, it touches every aspect of our life. Like mm-hmm. you, you can't just separate it. And it, it doesn't, because God made it a possibility, and we are created in the image of God, and we are recreators, 
we don't need to justify the fact that we are doing it. Mm-hmm. Now, we do have to do it to his glory. We can't. We can't do it without rules. Mm-hmm. But that that's that's not justifying our uh, our creation. Yeah. So I have some thoughts based upon what Rockmacher wrote, and then some things also that he wrote in Modern Art and the Death of Culture. Cool. And then kind of taking into some stuff we've talked about, like with book uh, Culture Care. Yeah, that's there's a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a just a few thoughts about Fujimura talks about border stalkers, and I thought that actually Rookmarker also talked about that too. Yeah. That was swirling around my head one night on the edge, where one thing runs into another thing, is the place of difference. The borderline is the philosophical and physical truth that everything is not one big ball of oneness. Without borders, we have the world before creation, dark, formless, and meaningless. The very act of creation is to mark out differences, to separate. Yet to separate is not to remove from context, being as if light could have meaning apart from darkness. The struggle for the creative person is not an ex nihilo struggle, for we are not God, but a refashioning and reforming struggle. How to take what is and make what is not. To be creative is to stalk the border of hard fact and the land of imagination, to see, at the same time, what is and what could be. That's pretty cool. So that's what I was thinking about. That's really fun. So you should read these books so you can come up with some fun things to think about. Yeah. No, and it's, it's so fun. Like, we, we were able to talk about culture care here way, way long time ago. A long, long time ago. But really, I think that Rookmacher was the genesis of that or or one of the... So, and he, he worked... Um, I think he was also, like, at the same time of Francis Schaeffer. And yes. they were... Um, I don't know, working together, but like kind of the same ideas and like kind of working they for did, the same movement. Yes. And so it, it, it's fun to see uh, if you like this, then you'll also like culture care. And that he, you know, kind of puts his spin on it and, and puts it, you know, further as well. Yeah. Right. You know, the old saying we see so far because of the, the, sh- the shoulders of giants that we stand upon. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think Rookmacher, and, and, and is there other readings that you would recommend, or all of it, or? I would say The Creative Gift mm-hmm. by Rookmacher. I would recommend reading that. It's almost, um, art ha- uh, needs no justification is almost like a sub. Uh, like a summary? No. So, yeah, if you like, if you want to hear just a longer, like an actual book form mm-hmm. of Art Needs No Justification, read The Creative Gift. Okay. Because basically Art Needs No Justification is in there. Just it's it's written a little differently. Sure. And then after that, I would think maybe go to uh, Modern Art and the Death of Culture. Mm-hmm. And also, if you're going along these veins, I think you need to read... Some Schaefer. So either yeah, how, how should we then live? If you don't want to read that, you should read The God Who Is There. That, that was a good, good place to start. Yeah. That's fantastic. So hopefully you're, you're ready. And this is a really, like we, we already said, it's very you know easy to read. You can read it in little snippets. You can read it time and time again. Time after time. 
right? Yeah. It's one of those things that you're going to want to, like, you know, brush up on and read a little section here and there. Brush uh, up your Shakespeare. Yeah, brush up your Rookmacher. Start reading it now. Also, it's, it's, it's about 12 I don't know, between 10 and $12 right now on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, so it's a great gift. It or is you, a great gift. You know, you can get it for yourself. It's, it's really nice to have. Uh, so I, I would recommend that you get your own copy and then you get your pencil out and, yeah. you know, you write your little notes. It's very thought-provoking. It's, it it's, is. It's fun just to sit and then you can kind of ponder it yeah. for a bit. I guess new in the shop is the little Frogmeister guy. We finally, I finally got my little froggy guy in the in the shop, and he is um, a a uh, a frog who has inherent meaning, uh, <laughs> which is to say that uh, he he doesn't do anything but but sit, and he reminds you to sit, and and he's he's just got a lovely personality. I don't know. Like he's a he's a grumpy little frog. Is he grumpy frog or is he he curmudgeon frog? He's he's curmudgeon frog. Okay. Like he's he's happy on his lily pad in the rain with his little leaf umbrella. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's also, also going yelling to... at the like the tadpoles get out of my yeah. you know, lily pad. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, "Oh, this, you know, this rain therm, you know, yeah. blasted rain." Blah, blah, blah. Uh, but you know, he's actually really happy just to be sitting there. And he, he and you know, because like people are like, well, why don't you move? And he's like, rah, rah, rah. Mm-hmm. right, he's not going to move. No. Uh, and so, <laughs> and so he's just uh, content to be sitting in the rain with his little leaf umbrella, which was really fun to make. Yeah. Uh, I can see that. That it's, was really it fun. Is, it is an uh, art piece. It's not a stuffed animal that you give your, your kids. No, no, it's, it's not. Yeah, it's structurally sound. <laughs> but, it's structurally sound. I mean, yeah, but it's it just like it, a child's love would uh, quick, deform it. Yes, yeah, deformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and also, I got to experiment with more elaborate-ish. I don't want to say elaborate, but elaborate-ish uh, embroidery on crochet, and, and 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 embroidering on on crocheting is a little bit tricky because there's not regular. Um, places to put your needle and so sometimes like making your stitches you know the same size and getting it to line up right is a Mm -hmm. little bit tricky because you're working into stitches instead of just a piece of cloth yeah I think the irregularities give him even more personality and yeah it was really fun it was just one of these creative is he staying one of its kind yeah I think I might I might revisit this this grumpy frog but Right now he's one of a kind. I have well, I have I have one other. Okay. I have the I have the original. Okay. And then there's just this one, and I I'm tempted to just leave it as the one. I do I did write down what I did, so I could make another one technically, but I kind of like that it's just a grumpy frog, and I I'm want to do more creatures in, in this style. Okay. I want to explore that more, and the the mixed media and the embroidery and stuff like that. Uh, so I have ideas for other, and so I think it's just going to be one, one here and there, of of what I do. So if 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 you want to get on the Megan collectibles early, now now would be the time. This really would be something that would be a collectible, if it ever <laughs> is. You know, yeah. like of all the things I make, this would be the most collectible ish. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
uh, now would be the time to get them. And I, yeah, it just was a really fun process. And I think it turned out so well. And I, it was really fun, you know, talking about doing your best. Like, my original little froggy dude is almost the same, but there's these little tweaks that I was able to make with the second one that I think makes it better. Mm-hmm. And so that's very exciting when you when you can make it twice over, but not so many times when you just like made that third one and it's just like, oh, it's worse than all of them. Because <laughs> that happens too. That is true. Sometimes you're like, just don't touch it. Yeah, just, just walk away. Just walk away from it. Stop, stop messing with it. It just has to be looking deformed, Mm -hmm. you know, and just sell a deformed frog, (laughs) you know, and that's why he's grumpy. So, uh, that's new in the shop and, um, yeah, if you want, if you want to snag it, I'm happy to ship it to you. We're happy to ship a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. We'll ship anything you like that's in the store to you. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it works. It is. It's it's amazing. Most convenient. Um, I think we're going to be taking a little vacation. Yes. Um, in July. Is our vacation month? We're not quite sure. Is it going to be? I don't know if it's going to be two weeks or if it's going to be four weeks or because we got Fourth of July in there, and then we got we got family we vacation, got Traverse City Traver- to explore, yeah. and traveling and just cigars to relaxing, smoke, books to read, yeah, beaches to sit on, yeah. So and just you know, living that life of of taking breaks and leisure and mm-hmm. you know. Get, and then we'll get back to work eventually, but we'll, we need a we'll, little break. Well, we'll, what we are doing is we are recodifying our intrinsic value. Yes. And, and we are going to bring that back to you. So you can exactly. see us as adventurers into the realms of knowledge and bliss and uh, happiness. Huzzah! Huzzah. <laughs> <laughs>